Well, welcome again. Uh, if, for those of you that are new or visiting, my name is Ralph, and we're just so honored that you've joined us today. And I want to invite you, if you're new, to grab a connection card. Those are in the seats right in front of you. Uh, fill it out and drop it into the offering as it comes by in just a moment. Or after service, you can take it out into the lobby where we've got a new people's table, and you can drop it off there where we have a nice little gift for you. Um, after you turn in that card, what we do with those, just so you wonder, why do they want those cards? Uh, we just want to be able to extend a personal greeting to you. And also, I want to welcome all of you that are joining us online. We are just so grateful that you are with us today. Well, I have just a few brief announcements. This weekend, we have an art exhibit out in our courtyard, and it's featuring artists from Chris... We have an art exhibit in our courtyard featuring artists from Christian Assembly, so uh, stop by after service and check that out. And if you've got kids, join the Kids Church team on Sunday, October 29th at Brookside Park, which is right next to the Rose Bowl. It's for our fall park meetup. It's from 2.30 to 4.30, and there's going to be treats and games and fun for the entire family. And yes, costumes are welcomed at this event. So for more information, uh, visit our website. And to find out about all the great things that are happening here at CA and that are coming up, uh, I want to encourage you to go to your bulletin or check out our website or our app. Well, this is the time in our service when we continue to worship God and we do so through our tithes and offerings. I want to read Psalm 1990. It says, your faithfulness continues through all generations, which is such good news. So let's give thanks to God. Uh, for his faithfulness to us as we give. You can give using the offering bags or you can give online using our CA app or our website. And if you are new or visiting us, uh, we don't want you to feel any obligation to participate. But to our CA family, we want to say thank you for your ongoing generosity. And would you pray with me one more time? Well, Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness to our generation. We just ask your blessing on our tithes and our offerings. And Lord, we ask your blessing on the rest of our service and time together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, ushers, you can come and serve us. Yeah. Uh, I want to welcome all of my church family, those of you who are visiting, any guests. Such an honor that you would spend this time with us. And uh, to my church family on the other side of the street as well. I want to welcome you. Well, a number of years ago, while I was serving jury duty, I was asked about my profession during the jury selection process. And I explained that I worked as a pastor for a local church in Los Angeles. And there was another man who was selected along with me to serve on that same jury, he was a scientist, some kind of astrophysicist who worked at JPL. And whenever we had a break during this trial that was going on, this man would seek me out and want to talk to me about Christianity. We had several conversations, and he must have insisted a dozen times through our conversations that he was an atheist, wanted me to know that. 
But he kept seeking me out over and over and over again. <laughs> wanted to talk about I mean, this guy, this atheist was more curious about Christianity than a lot of Christians that I've known. <laughs> and I remember him, in fact, telling me that his son was about to start college, and he had told his son, if he ever gets interested in religion, look into Christianity, because of all the world religions, Christianity will serve you the best and is most grounded in reality. This atheist <laughs> was almost an evangelist. <laughs> he was a, definitely a kind of apologist for Christianity. The series we've been in has been a look at apologetics, the study and use of evidence that supports the claims of Christianity. And in the series of sermons, we've heard some remarkable evidence for God and the credibility of the Bible as God's reliable word. And this weekend, I want to focus in on the person of Jesus. Can Jesus be trusted? If Jesus of Nazareth really existed, really was a dynamic person in history who led a movement of devoted followers, if Jesus really was arrested, put on trial, and executed by Roman authorities, and if his followers really did claim that Jesus rose from the dead after being crucified and buried, what evidence do we have to suggest that these claims are true? There's no reason to question if a man called Jesus of Nazareth is a real historical person. Both within and alongside the Bible, there's far too much historical evidence for his life to conclude that he never lived. But what evidence do we have that Jesus is more than a historical figure? That Jesus is truly God and the Savior of the world? Those are reasonable questions to ask. Even in the first century, Soon after the news of Jesus' death and resurrection began to spread throughout the world, these kinds of questions were already being asked. And one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, Peter, wrote a letter addressing the common skepticism and curiosity that surrounded Jesus, even early on. He said this, uh, in First uh, Peter 1, 16 to 21. Here we go. For we were not making up clever stories, he says, when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes, Peter says, when he received honor and glory from uh, God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, Peter's saying, we heard this. This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Because of that experience, 
Peter says this, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention, Peter says, to what they wrote. For their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Peter had firsthand knowledge of Jesus. Saw him, heard him, knew him in the flesh, saw him arrested, saw him die and be buried, and saw him live again. And yet, even Peter points to evidence beyond just his eyewitness account. He wants it understood that everything he heard and everything he saw supports what was foretold by prophets of the old Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. He says, he says, you must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dies, and Christ, the morning star, shines in your hearts. Peter says, don't just take my word for it. Search through all the words of prophecy in the ancient text of Scripture. And see for yourself, see for yourself if you don't end up convinced that Jesus is Lord and can be trusted. Peter emphasizes the evidence in the Old Testament prophecies. He's not the only one, by the way, to do this. Everyone who wrote something about Jesus in the New Testament does the same thing. Luke, in his gospel, writes, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has visited and redeemed His people. Talking about Jesus. He has sent us a mighty Savior, from the royal line of his servant David. That's prophecy from the Old Testament, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. Luke points us back there. Paul does the same thing. He writes in Romans, God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The good news is about his son, In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line. He was referencing that same bit of prophecy that Luke talked about. And he was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul says, God promised us some good news, and and Jesus fulfilled that promise. God made good on His promise. And if you're anything like me, we can can miss what they're talking about because we tend to value what is new over old and what is happening right now in front of us over what has happened in the past. And yet these guys, all of them seem to suggest that rather than God doing something now to prove Himself, we should look back at what God already did and then look further back 
where God said what he would do long before he did it. If God suddenly shouted from heaven and we all heard him, would would we be more convinced of God and more likely to trust God? Maybe, but not necessarily. We would be surprised to find out how quickly people would write it off or suspect the hoax. If you're you're waiting to believe and trust Jesus when He proves Himself to you, will those who knew Him the very best, those who walked and talked and ate and prayed and lived with Him, they say you might be surprised to find out that the more you know what was written down before Jesus was born, the more convinced you might be that you can trust Him today. It's like they say, if you're amazed that I'm telling you that I met Jesus and I heard God speak from heaven and I saw Jesus die and be crucified and and raised uh, from the dead, if you think all of that's amazing, well, then you should look at what was written about Jesus hundreds of years before he was born. In fact, Peter emphasizes this again in a second letter that he writes. He says, this is my second letter to you. And dear friends, in both of them, I have tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory because I want you to remember what the holy prophets said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. And so this weekend, I want to look back with you at what is this evidence that is found in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures? What is this evidence that they are talking about that lends credibility to the biblical claims about Jesus and why He can be trusted? And so I want to talk about prophecy with you for a moment. And then I want to show you some of these Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. And then I'm going to tell you what I believe that means for you and for me today. So let's just talk for a second about prophecy. Prophecies are scattered like seeds throughout the Bible. The Bible is made up of 66 books written by at least 40 different authors over a period of about 1,600 years. The 27 books of the New Testament were all written within the first century after Jesus was born, the century he lived in. And no book was added to the Bible in the 400 years just prior to his birth. So the 39 books of the Old Testament were written over a period of about a thousand years. And during all that time, people were writing. We know that at least 
32 different people during that long period of time. There were probably more, but they were writing in a variety of genres and styles. They wrote down genealogies and histories, laws and poetry. And throughout all of those different kinds of writings, there are statements of description and prediction of what will happen in the future. And those statements are known as predictive prophecy scattered like seeds throughout these ancient books we find prophetic statements about a promised savior and all the prophecies point together to nobody except one man in history jesus of nazareth in fact, studies that have been done to count, to go through all of the Old Testament scriptures and to count the, the number of prophetic statements fulfilled by Jesus, those that have done that study, they count at least 300. Some of them recognize even more than that to be prophetic statements fulfilled by Jesus. But at least 300 statements of prophecy fulfilled only in Him. Now, that might be difficult for some of us to comprehend what that means. So let me put it in terms of probability for us. There's a man named Peter Stoner, who at least at one time, I'm not sure if he still is, but was the chairman of the departments of mathematics and astronomy at Pasadena City College, just right here close to us, and chairman of the science division at Westmont College. And this, this guy, Peter Soner, decided to try and, and frame, make sense of the terms of probability that all of these prophetic statements could happen in one person's life. He looked at all of these Old Testament prophetic statements about a coming Savior, and he asked, what are the chances? What are the chances that they would all happen? in one person's life. Now, he quickly ruled out that a number can't even, it can't even be derived from the total. If he, if he started with 300, there's not even a number for that. We don't even know how to compute that probability. So he started smaller. He started with just eight. What if, what if out of the at least 300, what if just eight prophetic statements from the Old Testament happened in one man's life. The chances of that, just eight, are one in 10 to the power of 17, or one with 17 zeros behind it. And then he explained it like this. Imagine if we covered the entire state of Texas with silver dollar coins. I like that he chose Texas for this illustration. Imagine if we covered the entire state of Texas with silver dollar coins two feet deep, okay? The whole state, two feet deep. We marked one of the coins and then thoroughly stirred the whole mass of coins throughout the whole state. And then, and then imagine if we selected just some random man, blindfolded him, and told him to pick up one silver dollar. 
What are the chances that he would pick up that coin with the mark that we put on it? That's, that's the same probability of just eight Old Testament prophecies all happening in one man's life. Isn't that remarkable? Then Peter Stoner decided, well, let's increase the number. What are the chances that 48 of these prophetic predictions would all come true in one man's life? And the chances are 1 in 10 to the 157th power. 157 zeros after 1. Those are some steep odds. The probability of something with 1 in 10 to the power of 50 is so improbable that the entire known universe does not contain enough opportunities for that thing to occur. So in other words, for 300 prophetic predictions to all come true in one man's life is not possible unless they are not predictions at all, but prophetic revelations of truth. In your bulletins, I've given you a list of 48 Old Testament prophecies that came true in Jesus. And again, that's just a sample. That's just a sample of the hundreds that can be counted throughout the Old Testament. The Bible's not a book of fiction. The Bible's not a book of predictions about what might happen. The Bible is God's revelation of truth that gives us more than enough reasons to trust Jesus. And so I want, I want to just kind of give you an idea of these prophecies. I've taken from that list in your bulletin the 48 prophecies that I've put in your bulletin. I've taken just 34, not even the whole list, just 34 of those that were fulfilled in Jesus. And this is, by the way, from just seven of, we know it, that there were more than 30 different writers of the Old Testament. This comes from just seven of them. And I'm just going to read to you a list that comes from that list in your bulletin. These are statements that were prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus was born. So the, just, I'm just going to read the string. Ready? The Savior will be a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Judah in the lineage of King David. Each of these statements are separate scriptures that you have in your bulletin there. I know you can't read along with me, but he'll be born of a virgin in Bethlehem and will be called Mighty God. Men of great renown will come and worship him. They will come from far away in the east in a caravan of camels to bring him gifts of gold and incense. Sound familiar? The child will grow up in Nazareth. When he makes himself known as the Savior, he'll be anointed with the Spirit of God and begin his public ministry in Galilee. He'll preach about God's kingdom using parables. He'll restore sight to the blind and perform many other miracles. What he preaches and demonstrates will be called good news. But then his own people will reject him. 
A friend will betray him for 30 pieces of silver. Those closest to him, his own disciples, will abandon him. Arrested and put on trial, his accusers will not find fault in him, but he'll be beaten and whipped. They'll spit on him and rip his beard out of his face. And then, here's a reference to crucifixion, hundreds of years before it was even invented by the Romans, it was written that this Savior's hands and feet will be pierced. Executed as a criminal. Those who see this happen will mock Him. And as He dies, they'll make Him drink vinegar and sour wine. That's a specific prophecy in the Old Testament. His side will be pierced with a sword to confirm His death, and He'll be buried in a rich man's grave, but His flesh will not have time to decay. Death will not have the final word. The grave will not hold Him. He will rise with new life. He'll return to the throne of God to sit at the right hand of the Father, and His name will be remembered forever. By all of this, He will bring salvation to the ends of the earth, and His name will be the hope of all the world. Those are all Old Testament prophecies. That's just 34 of the hundreds of Old Testament prophecies written by, like I said, only seven of all of the writers, all fulfilled in one man. And that man is Jesus. The reality is that He can be found in every book of the Bible. In Genesis, He's the promised Redeemer and blessing for all the nations. In Exodus, He's the sacrificial Lamb. In Leviticus, He's the seat of atonement. In Numbers, He's the healer lifted up. In Deuteronomy, He's greater than Moses. In Joshua, He commands heaven's armies. In Judges, He's the hope for all who turn away from God. In Ruth, He's the kinsman redeemer. In 1st and 2nd Samuel, He's the King of kings whose reign will never end. And in 1st and 2nd Kings, He is God's promise of victory over evil. In 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Jesus is the defender and protector of all who call on His name. In Ezra, He is the call to purify our hearts for worship. In Nehemiah, He's the restoration of life with God. In Esther, He is God's promise to sustain and never forget forsake us. In Job, He's the hope of the resurrection. In Psalms, He's the rock of our salvation and forever worthy of our praise. In Proverbs, He's our source of wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, He's the meaning of life. And in the Song of Songs, He celebrates His love for you and me. In Isaiah, He's God with us. In Jeremiah, He's a new covenant. In Lamentations, He's new mercies every morning. In Ezekiel, He's the shepherd who gathers the scattered flock of God. In Daniel, He's the Son of God, the fourth man in the fire, the Son of man in the clouds. In Hosea, He's the faithfulness of God. 
In Joel, He is our pardon for sin and our promise of Pentecost. In Amos, He is the revelation of God found by all who seek Him. In Obadiah, He is our deliverer. In Jonah, He's another chance to live obedient to God. In Micah, He's our compassionate miracle worker. In Nahum, He's the commander in the storm who even the winds and the waves obey. In Habakkuk, He's the fullness of the glory of God made known in all the earth. In Zephaniah, He is mighty to save. In Haggai, He is hope renewed when all seems lost. In Zechariah, He's our triumphant King pierced for our forgiveness. And in Malachi, He's the Son of Righteousness risen with healing in His wings. In every book, on every page, He is Jesus. The Son of God. The Word made flesh. The Savior of the world. Our Lord and our God. Those are just some of the prophecies that tell us who our Savior is. Those are the words about Jesus that were revealed and recorded hundreds of years before they were fulfilled. And they still declare the truth of Jesus in our time for all of us today. Alex, would you come and join me? I want to tell you just what I believe this means for you and for me. I'll never forget years ago an illustration that Mark used. You know those old Waldo books? Where's Waldo? And in a picture crowded with tiny figures, you had to search through the crowd to find Waldo. Sometimes, sometimes your eyes might happen to fall right on him, and other times it seemed impossible to locate him. But Waldo, he was on every page. Well, Jesus is kind of like that <laughs> in the Bible. The whole book, cover to cover, points to Him. Sometimes it's obvious and sometimes you have to search for Him, but He's there. Sometimes in person, sometimes in prophecy, sometimes in character or in spirit or in truth that sounds like the rhythm of a heart beating from cover to cover. Jesus is on every page. And if that's true in the pages of the Bible, then it's true in the pages of all our days and nights. Jesus is on every page for us to find Him as He is, as He always has been and forever will be. The whole time that I spent on that, on that jury, I kept talking about faith with that atheist. And I never could get to the bottom of what kept him from believing that Jesus can be trusted. Even knowing all the evidence that that man knew. Even knowing all the evidence that we have been pointing to in this series. It is still your decision and mine to personally trust the God who is behind the evidence. 
If all of God's prophetic promises are fulfilled in Jesus, then God's word is true. And Jesus can be trusted. His offer of salvation can be trusted. His faithfulness to you will not run out. All that God has spoken will be fulfilled. Just look at Jesus and trust Him. Trust Him for the first time. Trust Him for the thousandth time. In Him, God's Word will not fail. His Word is true in our life today. His Word is true at your home and at work and in classrooms and boardrooms and hospital rooms. His Word stands true and can be trusted in any situation. If there is anyone worthy of your trust, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. His name is above all other names. His name is still the hope of the world. Most worship, Alex.